This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily with me, Aisha Hazarika. My guests today are satirist, writer and director of many of your favourite films and TV shows, including the iconic The Thick of It and David Copperfield, Armando Iannucci, and Britain editor of The New Statesman and co-presenter of its rather excellent podcast, Anoush Shekelian. Armando and Anoush have teamed up via the New Statesman's podcast on a series called Westminster Reimagined, where they try to pick through the wreckage that is our current political situation, analyse the political titans who currently rule over us, and try and work out what the hell is going on. Welcome to the Bunker Daily. Armando, welcome. What the hell is going on in Westminster? What have you and... You do this every day, so... uh... You tell me. Um, no, I what mean, have the, you the, unearthed so far? <laughs> well, so far in our podcast, I mean, it's been interesting. We've tried to get together people who are both in, in the Whitehall machine and outside the Whitehall machine, uh, who are both national and local, who are, you know, belong to parties and belong to no parties, to just try and get a dialogue going as to, as to what exactly is happening and what are people's concerns and priorities. The big thing I took from our first episode the, something that Joe Russ from the formerly from the was it the Institute of Government who, who said yes. a former civil servant talking really about the rise of the non-executive director you know we you, the think of it charted the rise of the SPAD you know the special advisor who was the unelected 22 year old coming up with policies for the minister because the minister was otherwise engaged but now it's the non-executive director who have been brought in Basically, which is shorthand for pals of the minister. And people that you fancied at university. Well, I mean, you know, that does happen, you know. And, um, you know, and it's, it's just a human, you know, over the, over the months of pressure that he was under. It's only natural that he would want to break his own rules with someone who was paid to oversee him. But there you go. We've all done it. We've all done it. I mean, we've um, all done it, right? But, but, but the rise of this kind of almost like an alternative civil service within each department where ministers are, are airdropping in just people they know, people they've met in business or people, as you say, people they've met at university to kind of run the department for them which in turn has just led to this severe mistrust between government and civil service, which can't be healthy. That was, so that was, that was programme one. And so we go on, really. And I think that's a really interesting point. And I listened to that first one. I found it really, really interesting because I have been, I started in Westminster as a civil servant. And then I became a special advisor around the time of the thick of it. So I did feel really guilty at the time. I felt like I was part of the problem. But when I look back on it now, I feel like it was quite a gentle, gentle time. But when you talk about these people coming in, um, Anoush, one of the things that was really interesting on on that podcast was you talk about, you know, Lex Greensill, who just sort of arrived. Jill Rutter made this point. Mm -hmm. He just arrived and had a business card. I mean, when I got my Downing Street business card, 
that was such a lengthy process I had to go to get that kind of haloed card. And yet there are people just kind of waltzing in. I mean, do you think we really have got a handle on, on how deep this runs? No, I don't think we do at all, because you're right. The Lex Greensill example is a really good one, the way he just sort of managed to sidle into the heart of our government um, and, of course, made all of these very influential contacts. And then we know the scandal that's unfolded years later. And we wouldn't have known that without the work of investigative journalists, because some of this stuff, you know, just never comes out in the transparency data that we're supposed to have from government. So I don't think we know all that's been going on. And there's been some really great work done by journalists and also the, the Good Law Project as well into the into the way that contracts have been awarded during the pandemic. And so some of that, I think, has been exposing the practices that have become, unfortunately, the norm in Westminster and Whitehall over the years. And so I think we're seeing, we're seeing some of the more egregious examples of it being exposed, but we don't know the extent of it. And also, What's worrying, and I think Jill Rutter mentioned um, some of this in in our first episode of Westminster Reimagined, she she was saying what's worrying is that the sort of processes that there are to keep a lid on this stuff or, or hold it to account aren't very robust. So she was talking about the ministerial code, I think you'll probably remember in that mm-hmm. episode, and about how it's sort of all based on a kind of gentlemanly chumminess and you know as long as you stick to this old boy then you know we should be fine type thing and then of course when people break the ministerial code there's no actual process to hold them to account for them to resign or for them to apologize even and of course the prime minister is the ultimate arbiter on on any complaints that's the other thing we've been picking up on the fact that you know how centralized power is in the uk because we have this unwritten constitution so basically we're literally making it up as we go along in that the Prime Minister, with a healthy majority, is, you know, executive, judiciary and legislature all in one. You know, I think it was Tony Blair who who invented the Supreme Court, and it could be Boris Johnson who disbands it, you know, and it's perfectly within their capability and their power, because all he has to do is bring in a law saying such, and, and he'll get majority. And as Anush was saying, Nothing is written down these days. You know, we've even got, I think, in the last few days, the investigation into the procurement and contracts. You know, once the word went out that people's phones would be examined, suddenly ministers were losing their phones, changing their phones, <laughs> getting rid of their phones, saying, "Oh, I think I lost it," or uh, "Oh, I got, an, I upgraded last week. It was a great offer." Oh, it's all got a bit line of duty, hasn't it? They're all sort yeah. of getting rid of their burner phones and yeah. things like that. <laughs> Just cabinet ministers in a park just breaking up their phones and dumping them. <laughs> Although that does remind me, do you remember that time Oliver Letwin got photographed like yeah. putting loads of papers like in a bin? Somewhere. Yeah. 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 Amanda, I just want to ask you about this mm. as well, because, you know, when you penned the iconic, uh, the thick of it, and, you know, you had Malcolm Tucker and Ollie, and there was a certain amount of kind of laughing at the sort of civil service. Mm-hmm. But there was also a bit of a respect for it, because I think Malcolm Tucker, even though as as ferocious and brutal a beast as he was, he actually was quite kind of okay to the civil, he sort of had a bit of a respect for the institutions. I mean, he wasn't sort of, he had strong ideology, and he wanted to sort of get his way on things, but he didn't want to just 
destroy everything. For me at the time, Malcolm was the problem in that he, he is part of that kind of paranoia from central government in trying to control the agenda and trying to control what ministers can and cannot say and how much they can spend and who's going to go on Newsnight and here are the lights. So there was an element of that. But as Chris Addison points out in our current podcast, <laughs> at least Malcolm had a plan. Um, (laughs) part of the plan was to get everyone singing from the same hymn sheet so that it didn't look like we were all completely disorganized and the problem at the moment is what we're picking up on people are picking up i think the public are picking up is that there isn't a plan is that there is just this constant lurching from event to event from crisis to crisis and and a desperate attempt to respond to whatever it is the public feels most aggrieved about so that sense of there being a kind of regular pulse at the heart of government seems to have disappeared. It says a lot that now Malcolm looks like some genteel uh, <laughs> person. Sort of quite a benign figure. And yeah. when you, I mean, when you look at, you know, you, you mentioned the, the sort of pulse at the, the centre mm. of government or number 10. I mean, it looked like that pulse was Dominic Cummings for, for quite a long mm. time. I mean, he the Prime Minister sort of seemed to have outsourced a lot of the the thinking and the heavy lifting to this one individual. I mean, did you ever think a Dominic Cummings figure (laughs) would arrive at the heart of government? Well, no, I mean, I think the election edition, the episode of, ends with a guy coming into what's clearly Conservative Central Office, known simply as the fucker, who uh, (laughs) just isn't even as isn't as witty as Malcolm in telling people what to do. I'm not sure Dominic Cummings swears, I don't know, never met him. You know, if he's the beating heart, it is, you know, it is a metallic heart created by a machine rather than a human heart. Uh, But he wasn't he part of this problem we were talking about because he came in more or less proclaiming that the civil service was a bunch of idiots and needed to be replaced by not just the non-executive board members, but you know, mavericks and... Oh, yeah, weirdos. Weirdos and, and, you know, his essential kind of mantra is disruption. He is very much about how can we bring stuff down because it's shit um, instead of how can we build stuff up. And again, you know, having worked in both the civil service and as a special advisor, it, mm. it's very easy to rip things down. It's very, very difficult to, as you say, build things up, but also join things up, which is really, really important yes. if you want yeah. to deliver things. Now, Anoush, the, the the title of your really great series is all about reimagining Westminster. But many of our listeners will kind of feel that politics is really stuck at the moment. You know, the Tories do have this big majority. It does feel like it is quite quite hard for anyone to really, you know, land a blow on Boris Johnson. How can we begin to reimagine Westminster? I think that's a really good question, because as a journalist, I sometimes feel a little bit guilty because I'm often just criticising the systems that are there or the government or whatever, ex-policy, and not really providing any solutions, which is why I quite enjoyed doing this podcast series, because we did actually speak to a number of people who have tried to exert influence in a different way or you know, try and see a way of doing politics in a better way that sort of 
represents more people. We spoke to a really interesting independent candidate in Devon who's mm. somehow managed to sort of claw her way up to a very close second place in Tory Devon for three general elections in a row. And she was sort of talking about the way that she'd made local campaigning into something that can actually have electoral force in her part of the country. Um, but it is really rare still. And I think that's one of the depressing things about it. And of course, in terms of people feeling like it's difficult to land a blow on the government at the moment and they're sort of like Teflon. I think the pandemic and its extraordinary circumstances plays into that because, you know, everyone, even sort of people horrified on the front line during the pandemic who I've interviewed Mm. in my reporting over the past year have made the same point, which is, oh, any government would have struggled. It's, you know, it's an unprecedented, unexpected thing. And there's a sort of level of leeway given to the government there in terms of its pandemic response but you know that's that's going to run out that's not going to last forever I think we could already see in the polling that the vaccine bounces is very much diminished so that frustration is there but I do think things in politics can change fast but the stuff that we were kind of reimagining in the podcast was a longer term look about where influence and power lies and whether that can be shifted um, and sort of what can be done about these sort of people, spads or sort of shadowy figures who who don't seem to be particular. Sorry, no offence, Aisha, you're not a sh- shadowy figure in my <laughs> eyes, um, but people who don't None seem taken. to... <laughs> well, not, people not who don't seem to... treasure, so... Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, these people that we can't hold accountable, you, you, yeah. you sort of wonder yes. how, you know, how to stop this, this, this this way of working where people work in their own little fiefdoms. And also just asking, you know, slightly you know, almost being devil's advocate and saying, okay, if, if there is a government in power that you don't agree with and looks like it's going to be safely in power for the next four or five years and possibly win again, do you just bide your time? Do you grumble and complain and, and just bide your time until you get in? Or do you actually accept it's there and try and engage it in specific issues? I mean, we spoke to Louise Casey, who has worked mm. with both Labour and Conservative mm. governments in Whitehall on homelessness, on problem families, on inner cities, um, and <laughs> has got the wounds to show for it as well. So, <laughs> And that, that was an interesting insight into how, on, on individual issues, you might have to engage. You know, I've had to engage with the government on when the BBC's charter was up for renewal, uh, whatever it was, three or four years ago. And we're, we're currently engaging with the government on privatisation of Channel 4. You know, we, we might not get there, but the alternative of just tweeting how awful they are and then doing insults yeah. isn't going to get us anywhere. So you, you make that decision, actually, and go and have to speak to them because somebody somewhere might be slightly more in favour of, of, of at least hearing us uh, than yeah. if we were to just, you know, shout abuse through the windows. Yeah. <laughs> and then throw shoes at people. Yeah, yeah, um. yeah. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Where is Starmer in, in all of this? You know, he's had quite a tough time. The Batley and Spen by-election has, of course, you know, brought bought him some time. His conference is going to be quite important. This will be his first conference to actual people. 
Where's Labour positioning themselves on, on all of this at the moment? Yeah, no, it's a really good question because he's basically having to reintroduce himself to the public all over again. Because don't forget that when he was voted leader, the pandemic had already begun and, you know, there were much bigger stories um, than even sort of the new leader of the Labour Party who was supposed to be trying to pull the party out of its sort of Corbyn era doldrums. So this is almost, I think there's a feeling in the Labour Party MPs that I've spoken to, that this is a sort of second chance for him this summer. He's been going around the country. Um, you know, they've been making some announcements about sort of what what they want to do and sort of what their what their vision will be. And they have to flesh that out with some semblance of direction at, at party conference. That's going to unite both the left and the right of the party, because that was the whole idea of his his leadership campaign was sort of to have sort of one Labour Party again, um, which has been really difficult for him to do because obviously he has sort of suffered criticism from both sides. The big challenge for them is that there is a feeling among the public, and we saw it in in a couple of the by-elections that that played out recently, that this is a new government rather than, you know, Mm. a conservative government that's been in since 2010. We talked a little bit about this on the current podcast episode that's out about sort of how services have been taken away from people's areas under austerity, but they're not connecting it with the party that Boris Johnson is part of. So that's, I mean, that's been described to me by one Labour MP as the big sort of essay question for the Labour Party is what it does about that. And, you know, I suppose the hope is that Boris Johnson... I mean, it's all talk. There may end up a sense of betrayal in some of these areas that have sort of lent him their votes when they realise that they're not going to get that infrastructure that he kind of promised. I mean, why can't they persuade the public that... Why can't Labour persuade the public or remind the public that the cuts to council services were from George Osborne and David Cameron? What's It strikes me as something that should be fairly, not easy, but a, a straightforward message to get across if you were... if you. It's the one thing, the one good thing Donald Trump did. And that's a terrible sentence, I know. <laughs> I'm just like, I'm literally so breaking careful. myself. I know. No, no, wait, 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 you know, stay with me. It was just <laughs> sure how effective it was to say the same thing again and again and again and again. The bad thing was everything else. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if, if, you know, if, if every... Labour, senior Labour shadow minister was saying it wasn't us, it was the Conservative cuts. It wasn't us, it was the Conservative cuts. It wasn't us, it was... You know, and slightly mindless though that sounds. I I mean, is that... Am I just being naive? Is it just impossible to do something like that? I mean, look, you make a completely valid point. I think the Labour Party is so haunted by the kind of run-up to 1997. And the thing that Gordon Brown and Tony Blair famously did was, just as Anoush said, that the Tories kind of have shapeshifted of late, particularly with all this huge spending, Mm. even, you know, John McDonnell would have blushed that back in the day. Mm. (laughs) The new Labour kind of shapeshifted by saying, never again will we, you know, you'll always be able to trust us on the economy. We're going to be really, really tough on on the economy. Mm. I think you're right. And I think, the Labour Party should move on for that. I think a lot of people kind of have that memory hanging over them. And I think they remember Gordon Brown's, you know, words Mm. about prudence and trying to get people Mm. to to trust them again. But you are right. What people forget is there has been a Conservative Prime Minister since 2010. Yeah. 
but as and you said, it just feels like, and I think the the Labour Party has actually got to have a better narrative about saying this is not just some new guy that's just been in power for mm. a couple of years. This is actually ten years. You're absolutely right about the cuts to council areas, all the austerity stuff. There is a big charge sheet there, mm. but I think Keir Starmer has got to have the confidence to because if you're going to go in big on this, you have to be all in. Yeah, and I think he's got to be prepared to do that. But what what do you think of him, Armando? Well, it's I I want to see some passion, really. What I get, and you know, I've I've not been privy to every kind of major policy announcement he's made, but I I always get the feeling that it's been announced after the back of some quiet calculation as to whether this will be effective or whether this will play. And I know from people who have worked with him that there is something a bit more kind of passionate and thoughtful there. Um, he should take a, a lesson from Andy Burnham, who probably, you know, it was easy for him because he's outside Westminster, so he can have a go. But he at least showed some kind of depth of feeling for what it was he was trying to, uh, uh, what he was supporting. Um, and, and I have the most passionate, honestly, the most passionate series of tweets I've seen from Keir Starmer was a kind of, sequence of about 11 of them when the the, the Super League was proposed <laughs> and he was absolutely furious at the, the end of <laughs> Premiership football as we know it and the whole club system and the kind of promotion system. And it was just, but you know, that was great to see that kind of amount of anger and passion, but it was just about the European Super League and which <laughs> <laughs> it had been about the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> but, but 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 Amanda, just picking up on what you said earlier about you know you know sometimes not always just shouting at the opposition. Keir Starmer did try and do this. Oh, I'm going to try and be a constructive opposition. Mm. I mean, the question to yeah. both of you: Do you think he was right to have done that? I think he got the benefit of it actually when he first came in. You know, because that was quite it was right at the start of his leadership, wasn't it? But it became pointless because all all, all that would happen was Boris Johnson would would either harumph or laugh, or turn away, or try and crack a terrible joke. Do you want to see, Anoush, what do, what, 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 do what do you think of that constructive opposition sort of strategy? I don't think he had a choice because there was, like I was saying earlier, I think there was a real feeling among, among the public that they didn't want party politics as usual at that time. People wanted to feel like their government knew what they were doing, yeah. <laughs> which uh, <laughs> we know how that turned out. But um, yes, there wasn't an appetite for it. So he really didn't have a choice other than to sound conciliatory and supportive. And the reason why Almost every PMQs, I mean, I think he stopped doing it fairly recently, but almost every PMQs Boris Johnson will respond to his criticisms with your captain hindsight or your carping from the sidelines is because there is there has been a feeling among the public that that is what the Labour Party has been doing, which is, you know, quite unfair because as an opposition, you have to hold the government to account and pick holes in what they've been doing and and point out the flaws. But he didn't have a choice. So it's a really, really difficult balance. I I wouldn't have wanted to be in his position. You can benefit from constructive opposition. I think he did get, you know, I think people appreciated it at the time. Whatever the position is, it has to feel genuine. Do you know what I mean? It has to feel, this is what I genuinely believe I should be doing. There's got to be an authenticity um, there to it. Now, listen, I want to just ask, I've got a couple of things. I also just other things Mm. I want to ask you about, about in terms of reimagining Westminster. And then Mm. I want to have, I want to ask you a question about reimagining the the United Kingdom, but let's just stick with Westminster. I mean, a lot of our listeners, particularly after just listening to what we've just discussed, are obviously really worried about the next general election. Many people feel that sort of conservative majority 
me feel in another conservative majority may feel inevitable unless there is some kind of progressive alliance which which would be imagining Westminster in a, in a different way we've just been talking more about mm. coalition politics coming together Anoush I'll start with you what, what do you think about a progressive alliance any chance of it happening Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I know, I know that there's an appetite there. A lot of our readers are really um, interested in the idea as well. Um, and whenever we write about it, that you know, we, we can see the interest is there. And I understand the urge for it. You know, if you're someone who sees themselves on the progressive left or on the liberal left, and you've seen the way politics has played out over the past ten years, you're looking for a way for sort of your guys to to get back in. And that does seem like a route in. But what I would say is people don't vote along sort of predictable lines. So just Mm. because the Green candidate stands aside doesn't Mm. mean that everyone's going to vote for the Lib Dem candidate who would have voted for the Greens or vice versa. The Greens picked up almost as many Conservative council seats as they did Labour seats in in the local elections, for example. Electorates abroad, people don't like being told to to vote tactically. They don't like seeing their party missing from the ballot paper and they might feel there's a bit of a stitch up. Of yeah. course, there are seats that, 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 you know, in the last general election, there were a number of seats where, where a progressive alliance of some sort would have worked to keep the Conservative candidate out. But I can see why some parties and candidates are reluctant to do so. And also there are voters who, you know, like the word alliance, but don't necessarily like the word or are put off by the word progressive. The soft Tory voter that probably, you know, the traditional Tory voter who can't abide Boris Johnson and can't abide the rightward lurch of the Conservative Party. And that's a lot of people who are looking for places to go as well. Uh, Mm. Interesting, in our next podcast, the final one in the series, we we have Paul Mason and Anna Soubry talking about, you know, how possible is it to agree? And I do pose them the question, if you two had to form a coalition government, what would you agree to? Interestingly, we found that actually Paul Mason was far more open to engaging with those outside his kind of political uh, sphere than Anna Soubry, the the so-called independent-minded candidate. Oh, wow. A really interesting conversation, I I felt. And where were their um, point commonality? I presume it was on Europe and and Brexit. Yeah, and devolution of power, localism, all sorts of areas they could could agree on. But it was interesting that Anna Soubry was the one who had, correct me if I'm wrong, but with the one slightly hesitant about getting into bed with the left. You know, if we if we have to change the electoral system in order to get fairer representation, then we have to agree something with the other parties. And that means actually looking to an electorate beyond our own kind of immediate supporters. And that means making compromises. I mean, I think the idea of an alliance is, is fantastic, but I think what a lot of people also forget that there is a lot of tribal hatred mm. between some of the parties. Like, what well, people always think that the Lib Dems and the Labour Party should just be best friends, and they actually hate each other on the ground yeah. on mm. politics. And I did a, a actually political panel on my radio show a couple of weeks ago. We had four members of the House of Lords talking about a progressive alliance and Andrew Adonis, who's very, very keen on it, he started saying, look, I think we should do it. And then he and the Liberal Democrat woman ended up just having a huge row about the coalition. And, you know, he was like, well, the Liberal Liberal Democrats are disgraced because of what they did propping up the Tories. And then, you know, she was hitting back at him. And then it was like, this isn't going so well anymore (laughs) in terms of... So it's it's, it's interesting to see, you know, where that will go. I mean, there is going to be a lot of pressure, but I think Anusha make a good point. A lot of people are happy to 
to vote in the way they want to, like as they did in uh, Chesham and Amersham by election. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they don't necessarily want to be told yeah. how yeah. to vote. Amanda, you just mentioned devolution of mm-hmm. power and that takes us to Scotland. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to get your thoughts. I mean, in terms of reimagining Westminster, well, could a reimagination of Westminster be a broken up United Kingdom and, a, and an independent Scotland? Well, that's obviously a, a huge possibility. You know, just come, come back from Glasgow and Edinburgh last week. Two things. One is, I think there's an admiration for how uh, Nicola Sturgeon conducts herself. I didn't detect a huge, deep admiration for, for those underneath her. But emotionally, why wouldn't Scotland go independent if, if the alternative was more Boris Johnson, Farage on your television? Why wouldn't you? Interestingly, the one thing the, the pandemic has thrown up is just the regions as well. Mm. Um, and that may be one, you know, if you wanted to be creative, if, if you wanted to preserve the union as it were, that may be one approach, which is actually to see um, an even more devolved Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland as part of a more, um, you know, a c- community of, of, of powers, you know, the yeah. North and Southwest and, and, and you know, Greater London and, and so on. That's one way. But, um, you know, for me, I feel very kind of both involved and not involved because, you know, the frustrating thing about the last referendum was people outside Scotland, but Scottish born, didn't have a vote. So someone from Spain doing, you know, English as a foreign language in Glasgow was able to vote on the future of the country. But someone like me, born in Scotland, but living in uh, in England, wasn't. And so I hope, you know, inevitably there will be another referendum, I'm sure. Maybe not as soon as Nicola Sturgeon thinks, but I'm sure in the next 10 years or so. And Amanda, if you could vote, how would you vote? Oh, uh, well, uh, uh, I'm not going to say at the moment. I think it really is, only because I don't know. In the, yeah. It really is finally. I always thought of myself, especially when I started working in London, I always thought of myself as in favour of preserving the union. So, but I could see exactly why <laughs> people in Scotland have had yeah. enough. I can act, you know, I, I get it. So I think the onus is on politicians in London to try and answer that, really. And final question. It's been so interesting chatting to both of you. Thank you so much for, for coming on. Amanda, I'm just interested, you know, you've moved from writing about politics and satirising it and sort of finding the funny and the absurd and the, the ridiculous in politics to now, you know, from this conversation and a lot of the other work you've done, you know, you care about it. You know, why, why, mm. the, why the move and... Do you think you could see yourself doing something political? What, like standing for something? <laughs> I don't know, or just being part of something. Because I think what you're doing with Anoush is, is very the interesting. Reason, the reason I satirised it or whatever or made fun of it is because I cared about it. I always did care about it. I'm fascinated by it and I want it to work. And the reason I may be a bit more serious about it at the moment is because, you know, all the mockery is actually in politics itself now. You know, the unreality, the complaints about fake news, the the lack of truth, making things up. They're the jokers, you know, they're the entertainers. They're the ones telling us one thing when we know the exact opposite is the case. So now, you know, rather than tell jokes about it, bending what little there is of the truth even more, I'd rather burrow around it and just see, you know, what really is there. So that's that's where I am at the moment. But that, you know, 
who knows what might happen next. <laughs> and are, are people like Donald Trump and, and Boris Johnson, I mean, many satirists have said this to me and many of my mm. stand-up friends, and even when I was, when I go back and do stand-up, it's quite hard to satirise them, isn't yeah, exactly. it? Exactly. Exactly. Because as I say, they're their own entertainers. Trump gets up and says, you know, I can shoot a guy in the face in Fifth Avenue and still get elected. He, he doesn't care. There are no rules. In the thick of it, we show rules being bent. But if there are no rules, if someone can get up in the House of Commons and say, we are breaking international law, but only in a limited and specific way, then, you know, <laughs> uh, I commend this to the House. We're just, we're uh, just breaking, just a soup song. We're breaking the law, but just a soup just song. A tiny bit, yeah. You know, I was speeding officer, but only a very limited, kind of, uh, but only in one direction. There's nothing else to do, really. They, they're doing it all. And so, but also, you know, where is power? It's not just now in politics, but it's in Facebook and it's in Apple. It's in the lobby, you know, the huge lobbies in America. It's elsewhere. And so that's what concerns me now. And also just discourse, you know, part of this set of podcasts was about trying to get people from different perspectives together, but without it ending up in a kind of fist fight, just as a kind of, Let's see. Anyway. <laughs> and on that, if um, if you got an invite on to do something on GB News, Amanda, would you would you take them up on it? I haven't watched any of it yet, apart from I watched a minute of Andrew Neil about five weeks ago, and just I, I wasn't tempted, which is a shame because Andrew Neil on the BBC was 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 brilliant actually, and should go back. No, I I don't think I'd be going on GB News because I don't think any people would be watching really. Anoush, have you have you been enjoying the the delights of GB News? I have actually. Like, I've enjoyed the sort of innocent Twitter accounts and 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 TikTok accounts of the technical glitches. Um, so that's that's where I've derived my entertainment from so far. <laughs> well, well, listen, it's been such a pleasure to have both of you on. Um, Anoush, just tell our listeners if they want where they can listen to. Westminster reimagined. Yes, they just have to go to newstatesman.com forward slash culture forward slash podcasts, or they can just find it in their podcast players. Brilliant. Well, we're so grateful for your time uh, today. Thank you so much to Amando Iannucci and Anoush Shakalian. And thank you for listening. And remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Monday to Thursday, plus a weekend edition too. If you've got a minute, why not head over to Apple Podcasts right now, follow us and give us a nice positive rating and review. Ratings are the best way to get the Bunker up the charts and we really, really appreciate them. And if you want to help us carry on podcasting, you can also support us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform you just search patreon bunker podcast to find out how to back us you'll get early shows smart merchandise and more thank you so much for listening see you next time the bunker daily was presented by aisha hazarika the producer was andrew harrison the assistant producers were jacob archbold and yelma sofranievich an audio production was by me alex reese theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.